Hi there, this is Matt Wakeling and you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Produced here in Sydney, Australia and zoomed all over the place through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and, you know, whatever kind of podcatcher thing you like to use. Now, it's episode 50, which is kind of cool. So uh, whether this is your first episode with us or your 50th or somewhere in between, thank you so much for tuning in. Great to have you with us today. Now, in today's episode, we speak to a fantastic guitar player and a very celebrated songwriter and producer who I've admired for many, many years. I'm talking about Mr. Phil Buckle. Now, in the early to mid-90s, Phil's band Southern Sons were all over the Australian and Asian music charts with uh, three critically acclaimed albums that also enjoyed a lot of commercial success and in no small part driven by Phil's amazing songwriting. During this period, Phil found himself working alongside John Farnham. In fact, Phil wrote about half of the Chain Reaction album, which was a huge hit in the early 90s, and also found himself in Farnham's touring band, following in the footsteps of Brett Garsed, who we interviewed a few episodes ago. If you've heard that, you'll recall Brett had nothing but great things to say about Phil's playing and musicianship. Phil's taken out a few really big awards in the Australian music scene. For example, the 1990 Song of the Year, ARIA Song of the Year, that is, the 1991 ARIA Most Played Song, and the 1991 APRA Songwriter of the Year. Now, if all of this sounds like Phil was an overnight success, well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, like most of these situations, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication to the craft going on behind the scenes. And uh, that's certainly the case with Phil's career. All right, so we're going to get to our interview with Phil very shortly. But first, here's a word from my friends Mick and Jeff from the Amps and Axes podcast. Hey, podcast world. I'm Jeff Bober. And I'm Mick Marcellino of Amps and Axes. That's right. And we've got a cool podcast that talks with guitarists. Manufacturers. Engineers. And techs. Yeah, so check us out every Saturday on iTunes. And Google Play. That's right. And as we're always saying. Onward. All right. Thank you, fellas. It's a great show. Amps and Axes. Definitely check that out. Now, you know, there's a saying that, you know, you shouldn't meet your heroes. Well, Throughout the last year or so of doing this podcast, I've met plenty of my heroes and it's been nothing but a pleasure. And that was certainly the case when I got to meet Phil Buckle. So here we go. Phil Buckle, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Absolutely uh, stoked to be here, mate. No worries. Fantastic. Phil, when did you start playing guitar? What got you inspired in the first place? Um, I think there were some mates at school that were starting to learn. Um, and I think I was, I was 13 at the time, so maybe a little bit older than, than a lot of other people, but I was 13. My brother had already been playing for a, a couple of years, so I'd seen him, you know, messing around. He, he was already up to electric guitar. Okay. But someone at, someone at school bought, you know, managed to get a real cheap guitar from Allen's or something. So this, this is a local, you know, music store. Um, and uh, convinced my mum. Actually, someone gave me a guitar with one string in it, and I took it took it home, and I played Zorba the Greek <laughs> on, to my mum. Which was enough to convince her, or maybe I should give And we were very, very poor. I don't know how mum poor mum. I don't know how she afforded half the things she got us. She really must have. She was one of those lay-by queens, you know. She'd put stuff aside. Okay. So I ended up with this little $25, I think it was, $25 nylon string guitar, and I learnt on that, you know. So that's kind of where I started. 
Wow, that's cool. Hey, Zorb, <laughs> Zorb of the Greek on one string is pretty good, though. You, you must have gone all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can't remember. It must have been pretty good, though. But, you know, it, I, I, just, I guess I had a, a natural aptitude for it. But I, I never had a teacher, which I think was a mistake. Um, and in fact, in my life, I think I've had one. T- I think I had six classical guitar lessons of friends. Oh, wow. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I, there's two sides to that. I think you you could turn around and say, well, you know, I've kind of learned everything myself. I learned it all by ear, blah, 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 blah. But I think that process might have been a bit quicker <laughs> if I had, had a teacher, you know. Sure. Um, might have short, short-circuited a lot of stuff. But um, I, I was playing um, harmonica before that. I made my mum go and buy me a chromatic harmonica because okay. I'd seen Steve, Stevie Wonder do his chromatic harmonica. Oh, thought, yeah, wow. This silver flashing instrument, this exploding. I just loved Stevie Wonder. And, um, of course, it was pretty – you can't – you know, I didn't, couldn't get lessons for that. And all you got was the little easy harmonica method book. But the good thing about that was it had, had the, you know, a picture of the harmonica and it had little arrows telling you what the notes were and, what, and there were numbers on the harmonica. So I knew that number four was, you know, C and number five was C sharp and blah, okay. blah. Yep, yep. So I could figure that out. So that means that I could actually blow notes on it and actually write the music down, which is pretty crazy because I didn't know how to, I had no idea how to write music. But from the book, I could figure out these notes. That must be what I'm playing. And um, I think I wrote my first, I actually wrote a piece of music. So you could see that from the very early days, I was going to be a writer. And I actually took that piece of music to school when I was 13, and the piano player played it on the piano. And as soon as he did, she did that, and the class listened. Wow. And as soon as she that, I thought that's it. That's, that's what I want to do. How exciting! Your first yeah. comp played by a pro. There you go. And I, I guess that's you know that way of attention seeking or something. But, but it seemed magical to me to have something in your head, be able to put it on the paper and get someone else to play it. That was pretty. That's a magical thing, I reckon. Wow, that is really cool. And yeah, <laughs> like you said, I think it set the set the scene for what was to come. It did. It did because as soon as I got my guitar, the first thing I did was write a song. Very, very first thing I did was write another little tune on it, and it was like a little finger—not finger picking, but you know, some some simple little tune. And then when I learned a couple of chords, once again, I I, I, I just wrote a song because uh, by that stage I was listening to Dylan. I think I got for my um, uh, for a birthday for my thirteenth or fourteenth birthday. My sister bought me. Uh, and thank heavens she did. It's amazing how you know people can change their life. She bought me Bob Dylan's greatest hits, and uh, and I just loved it. Um, uh, you know that had all good songs on it right there. So you know you're working out those songs and working out the chords, and you know got my harmonica again and got a harmonica holder, and I just wanted to be Bob Dylan basically. <laughs> That's great, man. Very cool. <laughs> so I started off with this folk thing, you know, and okay. um, and, and stayed with it. Um, you know, the, the that, that six-string, nine-string guitar turned into a 12-string guitar, which was probably a big mistake. I talked mum into it. We were in Allen's one day and I saw this thing and I thought, oh, that looks amazing. It's got 12 strings. It's twice as good as a six-string. <laughs> <laughs> Not really knowing that that would stop me in my tracks for probably a year because it just was so hard to play. Okay. You, even, well, simple chords I knew were very hard to play on it. Yeah, so sure. I took out the back to my, to my brother, had a bungalow out the back, and um, I used to sneak his electric guitar because that was really easy to play. You know, he yeah. had some piece of junk. It's probably a collector's item. And that was a Kenora. <laughs> I don't know if they're ever going to be collector's item. Yeah, uh, I had a mate with a Kenora. Yep, yep. There you go. Yeah, yep, very yeah. good. Yeah, he um, stripped all the paint off and painted it blue for some reason. Uh, but <laughs> cool. he had a little den out the back and he used to, I'd go out there and he'd be playing Hendrix and, uh, and Cream. 
Uh, and so that was my introduction to that, you know, my brother playing. And he used to have a band, so the, the band members would sort of, or the drummer would come over and they'd set up his drum kit in the in the bungalow. This was magic, of course. And and so we'd go into Ashley, my brother's room, we'd be listening to Cream uh, and we'd be listening to Hendrix. And that the scene was set, you know, really. I, I wanted to, uh, that got me interested in electric guitar, although I didn't get electric guitar much later than that, probably not till I was... Uh, uh, sixth form, I think, or, or yeah, around about sixth form, which is mat- you know, matriculation or HS. Um, I, I just stayed with acoustic, I really did. And here's a funny thing for you you won't believe this. I didn't learn because this, this is this thing about this there's no internet, and even though you could watch people on TV, I don't know, it never dawned on me that w- what they were doing. I never knew how to bend a string, and I didn't know how to bend a string on a guitar until I was 19 going on 20. Okay, I'm, yep. I'm not kidding you. Um, I, my brother had, or I have, um, this is this is now when I'm like 17 or something, we had Johnny Winter Records, I was listening to Hendrix, I remember playing in a band with Ross Fraser, who was John Farnham's producer, because we went to school together. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. I remember playing in a band with, we did a school social or something, they shouldn't have let us on the stage. We were actually, <laughs> I knew one song, and I think it was, yeah, Purple Haze, Jimmy Hendrix, Purple Haze. Right. I had, had this double stack app that someone had hired, and I had my brother's, would you believe my brother had a Jaguar, Some, somewhere on the line he got a Fender Jaguar. Wow. Beautiful, but I didn't know how good it was, you know. And he loaned it to me, and of course I wasn't used to playing electric. And I'd worked out the solo for Purple Haze, but I'd worked it out just by sliding. Yep, yep. <laughs> I remember being right over the next time we're trying to play this guy. There's probably, I'd give anything to hear it. It'll probably sound <laughs> bloody terrible. But I didn't know how to bend a string. I honestly didn't. And the funny thing was, I'd sat in a room with a mate of mine's brother, and he was what we thought was a pretty damn good guitar player. He could play Tobacco Road, which is, you know, that, I was born down, down, and yeah, this had yeah, yeah. I remember him sitting in front of me, and he's playing this old Maiton Alva, which is a, a semi-acoustic kind of thing. And he obviously was bending strings, because this magical thing was happening. I was watching him, uh, but I still didn't figure out that he, I don't know, I was an idiot. I just, and I remember the day it happened, and I actually had a Gibson SG. That was my first um, electric guitar, a Gibson SG. Wow, nice. Living away from home at this stage. Um, when I was 19, uh, and... I pl- for some reason I plugged my guitar. I didn't have an amp. I plugged it into my tape recorder, and because I plugged it in my tape recorder and turned it up, the tape recorder distorted. And that yeah, was the first cool. first time I realised that's how you get distortion. Before then, I never figured it out. I just never figured out how guys got that sustaining sound. I thought it was in the guitar. I thought someone told me that Jimi Hendrix had a tape recorder in his guitar, and I believed them <laughs> because, you, because you didn't know. You yeah, just, exactly. No, you know, you didn't know that you could turn an amp up and it would distort. I never thought of that. That was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And um, one day I bent a string. I don't know why, but I bent it. And that was it. It was like, that's how you do it. Oh, man, I was so behind. But having said that, at that stage, I could play guitar pieces by John Renborn. Um, I'd worked out classical gas when I was 15. I'd worked out, um, you know, just off the record. I transcribed everything. I mean, everything that someone gave to me, I ripped it off. I was a mad transcriber, but it was all acoustic stuff, you know. It was like Simon and Garfunkel. I learned all my Travis picking, all the stuff that you hear on uh, Burn For You and Hold Me In Your Arms. I learned that all from Donovan, all from uh, oh, Donovan okay. the, yeah, right. the Fraser brought around. So I'd, 
I'd worked out that whole steady bass thing with the thumb and all the just by playing it a billion times and just getting one because you couldn't slow things down, just getting one note after the other and just and I didn't realize how good that was for my ear because I'm I'm a pretty good transcriber. I mean, just before I'm talking to you, I'm tra- I, you know ten minutes ago I'm transcribing Charlie Parker lines. Okay, uh, wow. Because I'm, I'm really interested in in bebop, you know, and I was even back then I was because. For some reason, I ended up with a around about that same time when I was and I couldn't even bend a string. Um, uh, I was buying records and, and and thankfully I bought a, uh, a Wes Montgomery record, uh, like a greatest hits or something, you know, mm-hmm. the best one you'd probably get at that age. Uh, and I had a George Benson record, and these guys were freaking me out. And I had I had Benson burner uh, on vinyl, and I've still got it somewhere in the house. And Benson burner is like a it's just like you ask any jazz player who's interested. Uh, you know, in technique and stuff, Benson was killing it back then. I mean, he was killing it, and that's going back to this. To that would be sixty-eight, sixty-nine. I'm going back in years now. Okay. And to get to, to actually hear Benson, he was only nineteen years old then, and I and I knew it. I knew this guy's nineteen. He's like a, you know a couple of years older than me. And listen to him. That, that was a double album. And man, he was. And I didn't know what he was doing. I couldn't. I you know, I kind of figured out that. The rock and roll stuff was in this one scale, you know, which was pentatonic. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it was called that. It was just the good old, you know, this square box thing, usually <laughs> on, the fifth, on the fifth fret of the guitar. <laughs> but it was playing all the notes in between, and it, it twigged me. It just, I just went nuts. I couldn't figure out what it was. That was the first thing that didn't, well, it's, it stopped me. I could transcribe it, sort of. I couldn't play it. It was too hard. But that was one of those things. There was a couple of times when, um, I realized because I, you know, I started to get pretty smart thinking, oh, yeah, I can work out anything, man. The world, you know, I, I had this idea that it's just there on the record, it's mine. I can take anything, you know, I can work it out. And I started work, try to work out that stuff and realized, hang on a minute, that, that that's actually beyond me. I, I can hear it, I can know where the notes are, I can't play them. Okay, uh, okay. And that, that was, if I had had a good teacher, he would have said, well, you want to, might want to look at your picking technique. You might want to look at your other hand. Those things didn't occur to me. You know, it was more like well, I, I, I can't play this stuff. You know, and you can't play it on a nylon string nylon string guitar, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to play all that stuff on my nylon string, you know, and including Johnny Winter. And I couldn't figure out how he got that sound. And that was all the bending. Anyway, I'll stop talking about that stuff. But this just goes to show you how ignorant you can be, like because there's no one there to teach you. No one. It's, it's, I, I listen to you, Brett. Uh, Gasset um, uh, interview, which I enjoyed a lot, and Brett said a lot of it's exactly the same stuff that happened yeah, to me. Yeah. There was no one to talk to; that you just had the records, and if you couldn't see someone bending a string, and you know, you can, even if you can see someone's hand movements, you can kind of figure out what they're doing. But all that stuff was a mystery. So all that fast Johnny Winter stuff that I used to dig, all that pentatonic blues stuff. I just couldn't figure out on 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 the, on the nylon string guitar. But as soon as I learned how to bend a string on an electric guitar. Then it was all open to me from. Yeah, okay. Cool. So were you um were you doing any other bands? So you had your your Purple Haze oh, band. Did you? Uh... Well, yeah, that was. A, yeah, I did. We, funnily enough, my brother and I started this band called Buckle Band. <laughs> Can you believe? <laughs> and um, you know, it was kind of. Um, uh, was it? I, I don't think it was covered. I for you know I can I can honestly say that there was only one period in my life where I played covers, and that was in a wedding band kind of later on. I think I only played with those guys for six months. It taught me a lot, actually. But 
every band I've ever been in has been original songs. So I've never had that thing of, you know, we'll slip in an original. It's always been, no, we're just going to play original. And I don't know why I did that. It was for no philosophical reason. It was just, I really wanted to write. I really wanted to come up with riffs and stuff. And, and, uh, uh, and the funny thing was, uh, I remember Paul Gale, this Paul Gale guy keeps getting mentioned, the guy at Soundworks down in uh, Ringwood, who's our guitar repairer and Brett's guitar repairer and a lot of people's guitar repairs. Uh-huh. Um, uh, his band used to play one of my songs, which is really bizarre, even way back then, you know. it should have, Once again, it should have been the portent of things to come. You know, Phil, you're a writer. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, because um, I was writing these riffs and things, and I really dug that stuff. You know, I couldn't sing, though, and that's, that's probably been the, the bane of my life, that I haven't got a voice that works in a rock and roll kind of band. I've got a voice that probably works in a folk scenario, but I, I, I never could front the band. So you always had to do it through someone. Um, there had to be someone else involved. And thus, that that has probably been the bait of my life, actually having to do your music through someone else, especially if you're a writer. You've got to find a singer. Yeah, sure. uh, and let me tell you, there's a lot of guitar players around. There ain't many singers, and, and it's still... <laughs> Still true today. Anyway, I digress. But so that was my journey, uh, you know, with all the, I'm, I'm kind of glad I stuck with the acoustic stuff, you know, because it really got my um, my right hand together with all the picking and stuff. Okay, um, yep. And I did classical for a little while, and that also taught me that it got to a point in classical, I was playing a lot of Turega. I used to like Turega stuff and, you know, drop D tunings and stuff like that. I used to love the melodies and stuff in, in his... But I also realized when I started to play some really difficult stuff, I think it was Chorus or something. Was it a Villa Lobos thing? I think it is. Um, there's a section in that which is real nasty to play. Like your your left hand has to be pretty bloody strong uh, to do that. And I realized I actually am not very good at this. And if I want to be good at it, I'm going to have to devote my whole time to it. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. So I kind of gave up on the on the classical stuff and... Stayed with the rock and roll. Sure. What? Which um, other rock players were you listening to? So there's Johnny Winter. Um... Johnny Winter, Clapton, Hendrix. Uh, uh-huh. And really, that was it. I mean, uh, I, I really had a love of early Clapton. Uh, probably because I grew up listening to the Wheels of Fire album. Uh, and, and, you know, in my youth when I should have been taking drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol, which I wasn't because I just was never inclined to do that. Uh, during that period of time, it was it was cream. It was, and, and everybody else. I mean, all my mates as well. I mean, that was the cool thing to listen to and it just so happened I loved it, you know, and just loved the lyric because uh, uh, I'll probably make a lot of people mad, but that was when, you know, Clapton, everybody, everybody, uh, questions you know is, was that guy really that good well actually you know something he was <laughs> that the lyrical way he played um especially on that early stuff um and you know only only i kind of lost interest in clapton when he picked up a strat sad to say oh, okay. um, yep, yep. the whole thing just disappeared for me right then because it was that sound that he had the brown sound with uh, the 35 and and oh, the five absolutely yeah like on Fresh Cream and those records. Oh my god! He used to he's playing. He used to breathe. I mean, his phrasing was just so good. Anyway, um, and you know, the, uh, yeah, that that stuff I used to love. And in in those days, I wasn't into the whole technique or into shredding or anything yeah. like that. It was it was just that sound. How do you get that sound? And how do you make those phrases? I knew he was just using you know the pentatonics and stuff, and it was real simple. But what got me, and I could work it out, not a problem. That stuff isn't hard to work out. 
But what got me was, how did he think of it? How did he, and how is he putting those phrases together and making them sound so good? It was that little bit of magic behind it. That's what interested me. That's what I couldn't transcribe. I couldn't figure, how does someone do that? You know, I didn't understand people's history. I understand it now. You know, I didn't understand that he had his own history. He was listening to certain things because I couldn't read about it. You know, there was nothing to read. (laughs) There was no internet. You don't understand what these people's influences are, what they listen to and how they got to their point. Definitely. Definitely. So, um, so you're learning all this stuff. You're you're absorbing lots of stuff by the sounds of things and and you're writing a lot. When, when did you form the band, the state? Okay, so we jumped jumped ahead a few years now. I should actually go back and say that around that time I was learning all that folk stuff, I was writing. I was writing folk songs. I, I actually wrote my first album, what I call an album, when I was 17, still in school, and actually oh, okay. recorded it recorded it on my tape recorder. So it was pretty pretty certain that I was going to be a songwriter, even though that I didn't know it. Um, I just thought you know, it's a bit of you know a bit of fun writing songs about my girlfriend and her horse and whatever. Uh, and actually, I have a um, uh, a, uh, I've got an acetate of that somewhere because we used to be able to go down the street a, a couple of suburbs away for 10 bucks you could go and get an acetate made of your tape this guy had this system where you know he had like a record making system where he'd make you an acetate you'd play the tape and he'd transfer it to an acetate it was only one record <laughs> but you know I had a record that's still and, very cool yeah yeah me and Ross Fraser did it when we were kids you know because Ross had a Ross was a guy that got me into uh, sound on sound tape recorders. He, I had a tape recorder which I could record stuff on, but it was all one take. It was like you just recorded with your guitar and yeah. your voice through one microphone and you recorded your song. But Ross had gone one step further. You know, <laughs> This is the guy that ends up being John Farnham's producer. You know, He bought a sound on sound tape recorder. He could record a track and then overdub. To me, this was freaking unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> the things that you could do with that. You know, So... Um, so anyway, I, uh, so anyway, let's jump jump ahead. So I'm just letting you know that I'd started writing songs. So yeah, you're getting stuck in. Um, so the state came from a band called the Cutters. I I started working in a music shop. I I spent, uh, when I left school, I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. So I ended up working in factories and I worked on road gangs. I worked in so many factories, my God. but, But you know, the great thing about that was I saw how people lived. I saw... I learned what that was like, how to really earn a living, um, mm-hmm. and I did it for years. I, um, I particularly worked on road gangs for about two years, I think it was. Probably did two years in factories, two years in, in on road gangs. And road gangs, you know, literally you're on the road digging ditches. I mean, that's what you're doing all day from yeah, morning to wow. uh, getting abused by foremen and, <laughs> and what, you know the alcoholics who used to work on. I mean, I just learned a lot about the, the, the world. Um, but and I come home and practice, and I, I what it was doing was making me stronger and stronger inside to never have to do that. Uh, if that was life, I didn't want to know about it because that was hard. That was to get up in the morning, go to work in the summer, work on the roads. I mean, and working. Fa- I worked in all these rubber factories, making these horrible things, meeting guys that had been working there for like twenty years. Their whole life was in factories. All this was doing, I didn't realize it at the time, was instilling in me. You are not going to do that. You are going to do something else, you know. And so I was very uh, driven to to practice and get a band together. And so it was during that time that we got the the first band together, which was called the Cutters. Just meet a bunch of mates, and you know, working. I was working in a music shop, so different guys would come in, and I'd you know befriend them or whatever. And we ended up rehearsing at the shop, and and we started doing some gigs. 
And then I, that was around, oh, geez, I don't know what years that was in the, the early 80s, most probably, we've jumped to now. Okay, yeah. And there were bands like Pseudo Echo and, and, and uh, you know, that era of kind of pop bands. And they used to come into the shop and I'd see these guys. I've got to say, um, I knew nothing about anything. I'm not kidding. I really, I didn't know anything about the way the world worked. I didn't know how the pop industry worked. I didn't know, I just didn't connect with anyone that could teach me about that stuff. So I had to learn about it sort of working in the shop. And I'd see these guys come in and think, wow, you know, these guys don't really have to work. They they're in a band, you know. They they play and they get and they're on the radio. I'm like, that's great. You know, how, I want to do that. You know, that that looks. You know, and they and they write their own songs, which is which really attracted me to it. You know, of course, I didn't know anything about pop writing. I used to just write my own stuff. This weird kind of folky. I, I was always attracted to strange chord changes and you know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I was really into that. And I was really into because I'd grown up with the folk stuff. I'd also grown up with uh, Joni Mitchell, who was a very strange artist for me to be for a you know young boy or teenager to be into. But tell you what, she saved my life that that, that woman. Uh, and it was Ross Fraser who brought those records around to me and said, "Listen to this." And I'd hear these. I heard Blue, I, the album Blue, which is just a freaking classic album. And that was all about songwriting, all about lyrics and feeling. And that. Mm-hmm. that they used to give me the shivers listening to that stuff. Even when I was a teenager, I was so drawn into that stuff. That was powerful. I wanted to put the power, whatever that power was, I wanted to put that into to, into the songs and into the guitar playing. To me, it was always about emotion. It was always about that feeling uh, thing. If you could make other people feel the way that she made me feel or the way that those kind of artists, Dylan, her... Um, you know other other great artists from uh, singer songwriters from that time, and it, I was into also uh, Leonard Cohen as well, not mm-hmm. as deeply as, as the other two. But they were doing my head. They they, they were making me grow. They were. Uh, I just thought that's the power. I, I didn't you could I didn't put into words like that. But th- that's looking back on it now. That that was the tree I wanted to climb. That was the power. Uh, that was the you know my, my stairway to wherever the hell it is I wanted to go, sort of thing. Uh, and you can kind of see. I mean, I'm jumping all over the place now, but I give up. I can't. I can't be lucid. Uh, you can see it when a song like "Burn for You" came out. That what the hell was uh, for for its time when that came out? There was nothing like that around. That was just. I mean, apart from Ross and John's uh, contribution to the song, and they did contribute quite a lot. But the, the feeling in that song—that's what I'm talking about. I was heading towards that for the whole time. That was going to. Well, and it was only a fluke that it happened actually, but. That's where I wanted to go, and, and and you know, strangely, that's where that's where I ended up. Okay. It was all all about that feeling thing. But anyway, so we got the band together, um, and we started rehearsing, and you know, that's a that's a whole life lesson right there. I mean, you know, learning in bands and stuff, and hanging with your mates, and learning how that kind of dynamic works. But I was singing in those days. I want I, I was a singer in the band. Um, and I have I have a kind of a I don't have a rock and roll voice I have more of an alternative kind of voice I guess but I wanted to do for some reason I wanted to do kind of pop stuff I now we're talking about you know the police we're talking about U2 we're talking about singers and we're talking about even foreigner bands like that yeah wow. uh, these are the bands that are on the radio those guys could sing man and I and I knew I couldn't I couldn't do that you know those guys were singing A's and B's or oh, A's easily B's and C's in chest. And, you know, I wanted to be Sting, I just, because he had everything, man. He had the songs, he had the voice, you know. To me, that was the dream, And I, but I couldn't be him, you know. I just, I didn't have the voice. Um, 
but I was writing these songs that were way beyond my range, uh, uh, and you know, with all my weird chords and all the rest of it. Um, but it was good. I mean, it, it, we started to gather a following, and in those days you could. I don't know what it's like now, but in, in Melbourne in those days you could. You could get a residency at a pub, at a good pub. And you could build your following, you know, a bit like the way people build a following on YouTube now. Uh, we used to have a Wednesday night residency at a place called the Prospect Hill Hotel. And we started building that joint up and we ended up getting like 200 people there just with 100% our own material, all my songs and just us playing with my crappy voice and all the rest of it. We, but we just built it and built it and the members in the band would change, would come and go. And we got to the point where that band, The Cutters, was actually drawing uh, record company attention. Uh, we had record companies turning up to the gigs, you know, so it, it was kind of heading in, in, in the right direction. Um, and then, um, and I was, you know, I was playing, I was soloing. I was uh, at, at that stage. I had heard Holdsworth. Uh, um, uh, I'd heard Brett, uh, but at that stage, because yep. Ross Fraser was a mate of mine. You see, uh, even though he'd left the shop by then, I don't know. Yeah, he'd left the shop ages. He'd been probably already done. Because he started off doing uh, Semi and Angel with uh, Real Life. He produced oh, okay. that. Yeah. Well, he did yeah. that as well. Wow, cool. Yeah, he did. That's how he started. Yeah, he did the clap thing. Semi and Angel. Yes, yes. <laughs> he used to do that from front of house, actually. He had a little clap machine. Oh, really? um, and, and so Ross was kind of mixing in a whole different world that I didn't understand. You know, he was really mixing with the big boys. He was hanging out with Glenn Wheatley um, and uh, hanging out with, and, and Glenn, Glenn asked him, uh, to do Whispering Jack. Well, they didn't, they didn't know it was going to be Whispering Jack. Glenn said to him, you know, it, it was generally like, well, what are we going to do with John? You know, have you got any ideas? And so Ross was very resourceful. And, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure this was be, just before the Whispering Jack album. Okay, yeah. But, uh, but um, uh, what it ha- no, 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 no. Hang on, I'm getting all my, I'm getting my dates mixed up. Maybe I hadn't heard Brett back then. But anyway, the, that but time... You, that I you knew Brett from the shop, hey? That's exactly like right. Brett said, used yeah. To, yeah, he used to come into the shop, and I, I remember one day, actually, Brett told the story uh, when I was in there making coffee, and I heard this <laughs> <laughs> stuck the head out the door. I'm going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and that was the first time I heard. Uh, uh, I'd heard Holdsworth, but I, it was above me. It was beyond me, you know. And I, and I was really entering more as a songwriter kind of thing. I was really. I'd had my Clapton phase and all the rest of it, and I guess my technique was kind of more um, in, in that rock and roll thing. Although I must say that at that stage when I met Brett, I'd started my interest in bebop. I'd heard Pat Martino, I'd heard, as I mentioned before, I'd heard Wes Montgomery. Yeah, yeah. I had a real interest in that stuff, and I'd started transcribing it. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't figure out why are they playing different notes. It's nothing. It's not in the pentatonic scale. It's not even in the major scale. What? What is going on? I just that was a real mystery to me. But anyway, I'd started doing all that stuff, and then I heard Brett, and I thought, that's pretty. That's pretty happy. So um, I even transcribed a lot of Brett stuff, trying to figure out what uh, what he was doing. And I got it the whole. You know, I had my legato period kind of thing. Yeah, I've seen videos of you playing um, that legato stuff, and your technique's not dissimilar. Like there's still like you're doing hybrid picking, but there's a lot of. Um... Yeah, a lot of right-hand fingers are creating yeah. those notes as well. Yeah, well, see, that all came from the folk stuff. I found that, yeah, found that right. sound easy. And I was, to be honest, I was just copying Brett um, doing that. Um, what I didn't know, because I, ne- you know, I'd never sat down with Brett and said, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Although he did come to the house once. I think we talked about that. We just talked about other stuff. Um, 
I, I guess because my heart was in two camps, you know, I, I really wanted to write songs, uh, and I was drawn to do that. Uh, I, I think to do what Brett's, Brett uh, did, you kind of got to just go at it. Um, you've just got to uh, devote your life to that, as it were. And and, and I kind of, uh, I mean, I've always been a, a, a practice kind of guy. I've always practiced guitar a lot. I mean, I've, been, I've practiced for about four hours today. Um, I've always practiced a lot because there's always new things to learn, but it's never been um, to, to one particular style. I've been like just picking stuff up from here and there, all that kind of thing. Um, so back then, uh, in the band, in the cutters, uh, you know, there was soloing and yeah, I was doing some shredding kind of stuff. Um, I was getting into that, you know, there was Mel, Melmstein had come, come on the scene. So I was aware of those kind of, uh, faster guys. And I was kind of intrigued by that. I wanted, wanted to include that. So there was a bit of that. There was definitely legato stuff going on back then too. Um, but once again, I was a singer and I, and I was a songwriter. So that took up a, a lot of my time. That band, the cutters then, um, turned into the state. Um, and the state was the, now I'm getting much older now. I'm probably, uh, 24, 25, 26, something like that. Much older. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, by this stage I'd already built, even before then I'd already built a recording studio in my house. I mean, I'd spent every cent I had and bought this huge mixing console and was learning about recording. I didn't know anything about it. And I'll tell you what, the record, the, 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 the tapes we were making sounded like absolute crap because I had no idea. Because once again, where do you learn that stuff? Yeah, you know, I never, sure. I didn't have any friends in studios or anything. I just knew that uh, being in a studio was, uh, that's all I, I wanted to live in the studio. I wanted to do that so badly. It was like, that was like paradise to me. Because I think what had happened was because of the shop, I, I ended up being a Roland clinician uh, for the Roland guitar synth. Oh, okay. And, and they'd taken me to a studio and we recorded this little song, of course, that I'd written, a little jazz thing that I'd written. Um, it's funny, it's all mixed up, jazz, folk, the whole bit. But I did, I wrote this little bebop thing. And, and, uh, and we went to a real studio and, and recorded it. And as soon as I walked in that control room, that was it. I had to, you know, that was a dream. I, I want to live in one of these places. It was like some somewhere from outer space. It was just all these equipment and all. it was all about music. It was all about making music. And I thought, I just want to write and have a studio and be able to do that. And that's what I do now. <laughs> Fantastic, man. <laughs> Isn't it funny how, it, so how it's all... all, all um, it all starts like that, but that mad passion for it, you know. So anyway, the state, the, the cutters turned into the state, um, and, and the cutters were we were playing some pretty weird stuff. I mean, there was a lot of it wasn't any time signature kind of stuff, but my chord changes and stuff were pretty out there, and I was really interested in playing open strings. You can tell by Burnfield. I mean, I was playing that those kind of things on electric guitar all the time. Okay, you know, sliding yep. stuff around, weird chord change. I never ever wanted to play a bar chord. Um, I couldn't stand the sound of that. Um, I was kind of anti that kind of rock, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. Like, were you using were you using lots of open tunings by then? I know. Not by then. Not the, 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 the whole state. Uh, oh, hang on. On the state record, I'd started to. Because if you listen to the state record, this, there's a, a track, a boogie kind of thing. That's not my life. That's right. And, that, and that's, that's a C tuning. And I got that from Joni Mitchell. That's where that came from. I, there was a Joni Mitchell, Mitchell song, which she's obviously popular for, called uh, Woodstock, of course. Yeah. And she does this slow version of it on guitar because, you know, originally it was on piano. And it does this live version on it. And, and there was this one part in it where she, 
I knew she'd hit a bunch of open strings. Or no, I knew she barred a chord. That's right. You can tell when someone's barred a chord. You know, you can hear it. Yeah, and it, for sure. When, and, and it's a, and it's a, like a, just a one finger bar. You can kind of tell. And I thought that's the tuning. If I can work out that bar, whatever she's barred right there, I've got the tuning. Um, once again, before the internet. And I did. I worked it out. But I got wow. it wrong. found out later. <laughs> I got one, one string wrong. Oh, really? Yeah, because she tunes uh, in that particular... Cause she, she uses a lot of tunings. Uh, like a lot of her songs are just a different tuning for every song. Um, so she uses it from the E string, from the, from the bass string. It's C, G, E flat, F, B flat. Uh, C no C B flat sorry and I got B flat B flat in other words I had the two top strings my two high strings tuned to B flat but okay. they're yep. in, in unison so that's always and ever that's that tuning on, on that song and also oh, okay uh, wow so it's like uh, a C minor kind of thing it is yeah it is with a, with a raised fourth with yeah. a four yeah yeah um, oh. and that's that's also um, you were there that's when if you get on the internet. Uh, actually, I got on the internet last night. I couldn't believe it. There's two clips with a million hits of of uh, you were there. That's our biggest song. Uh, that's the. Um, it's actually bigger than Burn for You for me. Uh, wow. You were there. Wow. Um, because of Asia, people in Asia just love that okay. song. Okay. Yep. Um, and there's so many cover versions on it on on YouTube. And because no one knows the tuning, they all <laughs> poor buggers. <laughs> they all try and play it. And some of them do a good job too. Uh, but yeah, it's that's so the tuning did start back in the state days um okay yeah and then the state uh we had management by then because of the cutters we and we gathered record company interest we'd also gathered um uh a, ma- ma- a manager and this guy kept coming to see us and he just loved us and he loved the guitar playing and he loved the passion in it you know and he was saying all the right kind of things so I, we thought this was pretty cool having a manager and this manager was really well connected there's a guy called peter hoyland and he was connected to two other guys who were nightclub uh, owners and they owned in melbourne the biggest nightclubs um, probably ever uh, bigger than the ones that are there now uh, they owned a nightclub c- called the metro Top of top of top of Burke Street, yeah, top of Burke Street, or top, yeah, top of Burke Street, uh, in Melbourne, huge, huge venue. They actually, uh, yeah, anyway, uh, so they were connected to kind of like the club world, and, and they had another one called Inflation, and they owned another place called the Grain Store, and these were pretty cool places to to kind of play. Not so much the clubs, but the Grain Store was a great rock and roll kind of venue, and we ended up getting a residency there as well. So we were kind of learning, we were cutting our teeth, you know. Uh, we're doing that standard thing you could do back in the day. You would just get gigs, and you know it was hard to get gigs. It wasn't easy, but you, if you were good enough, you'd get gigs, and you know you'd get asked back, and then you might get a residency, and suddenly you're building an audience. People would come out and see bands, and in the and, and they were listening to original songs. I mean, completely original, the whole set. Uh, I mean, I found a set list the other day. And it was like 23 songs, every one of them I'd written. Um, there were no covers. It just never worked because wow. I couldn't I couldn't sing anybody else's material, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so that's when Virgil Donati joined the band too. Um, actually he was in the cutters. He'd come to see us. Uh, well, I think we'd supported him. I think he was playing with Tommy Manuel or something and he saw us and he really dug the material, which was really nice, you know, cause he's this guy, this yeah. incredible guy, and he's digging the songs, you know? So it was, you know, you could, it was kind of about the songs really. Um, you know, there were better guitar players around than me, but it, it, it was the song thing. Um, and so Verge was in the band. Uh, we had, uh, but we still didn't have a record deal. That, that that was probably the hardest thing in my life getting getting the record deal because 
I don't know. We just got knocked back by – it's the old story. I won't bore you, but we were knocked back by everyone, everyone. Every record company that got one of our demos knocked us back, um, not good enough or just not – because I didn't understand pop. I just thought the the big, the best thing you could do is be original. Do your own stuff and do it your own way. That's what's good. Surely everybody knows that. But I didn't understand the pop world and how it worked. Um, no, I soon found out though. Um uh, so you know, we, there was never a single uh, on our demos. No one understood what the hell we were doing, you know. Um, and I just remember our manager. He, he worked so hard. And he believed in the band so much. I mean, we almost had nervous breakdowns because at this stage I'm a, probably about 27 or something. So I'm getting old. I'm thinking it's not going to work, man. You know, I'm too old. To, it, you know, because really, that kind of pop, or in those days, it was about youth. They weren't signing anyone who was old. Jesus, they were signing, you know, 19-year-olds or 20-year-olds. or And heaven help you if you were a girl and you got past the age of 22, they weren't going to sign you. Um, so it was, it was, I was feeling a lot of pressure. And then I got a, I got a call from Ross Fraser. And by this stage, Ross had, um, uh, he'd, he'd done Whispering Jack. He was like, you know, he was on his way, well and truly. Whispering Jack was huge. That all that sort of stuff was happening, yep. and he was working for uh, BMG back in the day um, before BMG got bought out, bought out by Universal. Yep. And he rang me as a mate and said, "Mate, um, uh, no, he signed. He signed us. He signed the state. He was the only guy, and it was only because he was a mate, I reckon. <laughs> uh, mind you, he probably heard that you know if we produce this, we can do something." Um, and we'd recorded our first record at my place in, in a little in a little flat on a Fostex eight-track tape recorder. Poor Virgil, can you imagine getting Virgil Donati to play drums with his fingers? I mean, there was no <laughs> lock drums on that record. He was playing an SP12 drum machine. You know? Okay, <laughs> unbelievable. This is the guy that you know played Holdsworth. You know, may he rest in peace. Um, Alan, that is. Um, yeah, yeah. So. There's there's Verge, you know, because we we couldn't afford to go into a studio and record drums or anything like that, so we just done it all with this. And, uh, so you can hear that state album; it's up on the someone's put it up on the net. Um, uh, but Ross signed us for that, you know, and that there was a but and that was the first time someone said to me, "We need a single. You got to write a single." And I thought, "What's a single? <laughs> a single, you know, catchy has to be catchy. You have to, you know, I have a really good chorus." I thought, "Okay, all right." So. In that moment, it hadn't dawned on me because I never thought about things that way. I kind of crossed over into the pop world. I'd come from the total alternative jazz, you know, chick career because I'd gone through that whole period too. Yes, prog rock, the whole thing. I mean, it was a mad Mahavishnu. I mean, Mahavishnu is probably one of my biggest influences. Uh, not so much John McLaughlin. Yes, John McLaughlin. And not so much his solo guitar playing, but the music of those uh, on those albums, just I was listening to nothing else. Let me tell you, <laughs> that freaked me out. That was so good. The writing on that album, those albums, is still so good. Anyway, let's not get into that. Um, so, so um, uh, I I was into all that stuff. You know, I was Mr. Alternative, and all of a sudden, there's people saying to me, "You got to write a pop song." The, but the funny thing was, I didn't have an adverse reaction to that. I didn't sort of go, "Oh no, I'm only going to do my stuff." I was like, "Yeah." I'll do that, <laughs> no problem. You know, so maybe uh, you could say that you know I was quite willing to you know go to the dark side uh, and because I didn't feel like I was giving anything up. To me, it was just another challenge. It was like, okay, well I'll do that. Um, yeah, cool. Um, we can have some of my uh, some of the sort of more whack stuff, 
and we'll have some of those uh, other songs to m make the record popular. To me, that was okay. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, um, and so I wrote this song called Real Love, a uh, pretty crappy kind of pop song uh, that you know was going to be a single. And you know, we released that single. record sounded so bad because it was done on a bloody A-track. So nothing happened with that record, but Ross still believed in us. That's the thing about Ross. Ross Fraser is one of those guys, if he can see something in you, he believed in it. And he put his balls on the line for us, that guy. And he signed us for another record. Now this time, we, and by now we were signed to BMG. This was a big deal um, in those days, to actually get a recording contract. And we, and we did. We got signed to BMG. Uh, and they had enough money for us to go in and make a record. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want to keep talking about this stuff because it's going to get into the whole band thing now, but um, uh, I don't know if you just want to talk more about the guitar playing side of things, but really during that period, my guitar playing was really about songwriting. I mean, I remember I, uh, I was doing a lot of legato stuff, just practicing it for fun, but really my, I was really concentrating on, on, on kind of writing. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the first Southern Sons album happened when we replaced me with Jack uh, I, you know, and I wasn't a singer anymore. Then I, you know, uh, you've probably heard all this stuff before. I, I could, I, I suddenly heard what he could do with a song, and started writing for his range. And that's really where, I, when I got comfortable as a songwriter, I didn't have to worry about, oh, I can't write that note because I can't sing it. Um, by that stage, I'd written, I'd written a big chunk of Burn for you. I'd already written it. Uh, this is around just after the State album. Um, okay. Yep. Yep. Uh, so all that, that that stuff was sitting around. Just to jump in there, cause so the the first Southern Suns record that came out in 1990, and yep. Chain Reaction was about the same time that the John Farnham album. So, yep. So there's a lot of this stuff going on at once for you. It is. It all it all, it all coincided. Yeah. Uh, Can I ask uh, you about Jack joining the band? Because um, because yep. yeah, that becomes a big deal for Southern Suns, obviously. Um, so you're you're looking for a singer who can who can pull off this stuff, but Jack comes in. He's also an incredible guitar player. Yeah. How how do you guys start working out your parts and things? Because I guess as you you've just said, so this is what sort of brings it to mind. If if the songwriting's more the focus for you, um, so when Jack turns up, are, are you then, I guess with the guitar parts, are you happier to pass off the solos to him as well? I know you both yep. went back and Absolutely. forth on parts, but. Absolutely, was happy to do that. I was finding that there was so much work for me, like so much pressure. This is probably the first time in my life where I had so much um, pressure, and I was, you know, and my whole life was leading to this. Everything that I'd done was leading to this for it to be successful. You know, yeah. before before that, you know, it was just fun in the band and you know, write more songs and blah. all of a sudden we had a recording contract, and I was really feeling the pressure, like because those guys would drop you, they, they, and if they dropped us, it was over. 
uh, really, I, I don't know if I'd ever come back from that, you know. I didn't have enough years to come back from that. Um, so I was real happy because I heard Jack play and he was great. It was like, it's not as if it was a guy that couldn't play. I'm like, yeah, I better do the solos because this guy can't play. Yeah, he sure. could do it, do that stuff easy, you know. And in fact, I enjoyed writing the chord changes so he could play over it because he did play so well. Um, my ego, and we've all got all got one, was not in I'm going to be the best guitar player in the world. My ego was more in I want to be the best songwriter I can be. Um, that's where uh, it was dawning dawning on me that that if I had a gift, it was there. Um, not so much in the guitar playing, but in in the songwriting side of things, sort of thing. Um, so you know, I wrote all that stuff on that first album, the uh, Always and Ever, uh, Hold Me In Your Arms and Heart and Danger, all in a really quick period, probably within a mm, two-month period or even less, uh, because I heard his voice, because suddenly he, he was his voice. And that's probably when I turned into a, a – I mean, you know, as I said, I, I wrote my first album when I was 17, but now I was really thinking about song craft. I hadn't ever thought about it before. I just wanted to write – whatever I wanted, uh, in whatever form I wanted to, it was all about being, you know, organic or whatever, even though I didn't think of those things, it just came out, you know, now I started to think about form, now I started to think about um, chorus, verse, Uh, is this bit going on for too long, is there something stronger here, all this sort of stuff, Um, the mechanics of of kind of song, you know, it was pretty much a crash course. Uh, because, you know, we were in the middle of recording that first Southern Suns album with me as a singer. We had recorded Always and Ever with me singing it. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, and we literally went in, took my voice off and put Jack's on. And I remember the night, this is funny, not many people know this story. Um, Jack probably doesn't know this story, but I'm going to tell it. Um, we still weren't sure whether he was the right guy for the band. Um, he just sung Always and Ever and I was blown away. I just thought, that is a hit. And I didn't. Hey, I didn't know what a hit was really, but it was affecting me. It was like that's a pop song. That's yeah. And that, that was before Hirschfeld came in and put the keyboard and stuff on it. Okay, yeah. Um, and you know, Ross and I took a walk down the corridor. Um, this was in, uh, in at Metropolis uh, in Melbourne, where you know so many hit records were made. And Ross said to me, "Is he right? You think he's the right singer for the band?" And I said to him, "Right, mate. <laughs> he's unbelievable." <laughs> and Ross said, "I'm still not sure." And I remember that. It's like, what? How could you not? I think he was worried that he sounded too much like John. Okay, okay. Uh, well, a lot, cr- a lot of people thought that when um, when did. Heart and Danger came out, everyone thought, oh, it's a new Farnham single, but, but yeah, it wasn't. exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. They did, and of course, you know, we we it was our job to deny it. No, he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, you know, John was one of uh, um, Jack's heroes. I mean, gosh, um you know, and, jo- and at that time, John was, even if you weren't into pop music, even amongst us musos um, who were into jazz, who were into, uh, you know, all different forms of music, everyone knew John was a, a monstrously good singer. Yeah, even if you sure. didn't like, even if you didn't like some of the stuff he'd done, um, you knew that no one could sing like this. This guy's a, a monster. He's just unbelievable. 
So it was, uh, so, you know, we got Jack in, we replaced uh, all my vocals on whatever stuff we'd done. I wrote Hold Me In Your Arms. Uh, I wrote Heart and Danger um, in that in that period as well. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I get a phone call. Uh, and th- I think then the, th- then the record got released. Um, and it started doing really well. Um, luckily, Heart and Danger got picked up. But it almost didn't. It almost failed, and if it had failed, you know, it would have been over right then and there too. But what happened was, this is the story I heard. I don't know if it's true, but in those days, you had to get your your record on um, uh, on, on FM. You had to get it on, and you had to get national airplay. It was all about the radio. It still is, I guess. It was you had to get, and then those days, the record company would go in every week and play them their new releases, and then the the radio stations would have a meeting. They'd listen to the stuff and say, yeah, no. You know, A rotation, B rotation. No, we'll listen to that one again next week. It was it was hard. It was really really competitive. And of course, the first thing we heard, we heard this that uh, there's a station in Melbourne called Fox FM, um, which is the number I think there's still, still the number one station. You had to get on that station, otherwise you were toast. Um, anyway, so the Rick company takes that in and they listen to it and they're all like, "Sounds like bloody Farnham." <laughs> well, playing that, you know, it's just a bloody John Farnham song, you know. Uh, but evidently, this is a story I heard that uh, Dale Braithwaite was actually in at the radio station at the time, and someone said that played him the track, played him "Hard in Danger," and said uh, said to him, uh, "What do you think of that?" He said, "I think it's great," and that was it. They started playing it. So if it wasn't for Daryl, um, we wouldn't have got on Fox FM. If we hadn't got on Fox FM, we wouldn't have got on Two Day FM in Sydney. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of went from there. Um, so, so then you know the records sort of taken off. I think we we, we had a single in the top five or something. Heart and Danger. And then I get a phone call from Ross, and he says, "Mate, John's recording an album. You want to come and ride with him?" I'm like, so at this stage, you know, really, I'm not playing any solo guitar at all. I'm just writing. You know, okay. I've got, yep. It's back to acoustics. It's back to all that kind of thing. Um, and then I went and wrote six tracks with John, one of them being Burn For You, yeah. the Chain Reaction album, and all those six tracks got on the album. Uh, and suddenly I'm hanging with these dudes. I'm hanging with Ross, I'm hanging with John Farnham. Um, and then John asked us to, to do the Chain Reaction tour with him, so Jack and I are suddenly in his band. So we went from, I'm talking about a guy working in a factory. Suddenly I'm standing on stage at the Entertainment Centre playing to 15,000 people, and they're going nuts, and they're singing my songs. So it all happened so quickly. Yeah, but wow. But it took so long to happen. Mm-hmm. It took so long. <laughs> By this stage, I'm in my 30s, man. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I was old when that band was happening. Uh, but luckily, I looked young. In a way, it was kind of good because I had my head on my shoulders. You know, I could kind of, even though I still didn't see a lot what was happening. But anyway, I didn't do anything stupid. I didn't get into drugs or anything like that. I was kind of past all that. Um, but luckily, I looked pretty young. But um, by the time the band broke and everything, I think I was about 32 or something. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and you know, and then away it went, sort of thing. It had its rise and had its fall. And... Do you mind if I go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about um, well, burn for you? You've mentioned yeah. it a bit, and I was I was keen to sort of talk through that a little bit. Sure. No worries, mate. Yeah. Easy. So with burn for you, what's what's the process? So you you've already mentioned that you know, sort of halfway through writing it during some. Um, yeah, some of those early sessions. How does it yeah. go from you writing this tune to it ending up on a six times platinum record? Yeah. Um, well. Oh, uh, and if I can just interrupt, yeah. winning, yeah. Um, winning the Aria Song of the Year in 1990, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it did too. Yeah, and I got yeah, 
that was that was amazing. Um, it was interesting because you, that you can you can kind of see a lot of the the jazz stuff that I was doing back then. In fact, um, uh, I remember messing around with a chord progression way back that did something like a, uh, uh, this. Um, So it was like a bossing over thing, right? But it was that. Now, if I take that first chord, um, move it up two frets, there's a first chord for burn cube. Uh, okay. So I was messing with those chord shapes. It was like a, I was I was hearing the police. I was messing with, um, you know, I loved all that stuff, all those open open strings. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'd come up with that for some reason. I. I, I I can vaguely remember the first night I came up with that, that chord progression. And I, the first thing I came up with was the chorus. And I actually sang Burn For You. Wow. Um, uh, and that's that's something, um, you know, we didn't really talk about songwriting a, a lot because, you know, I know this is a guitar thing, but songwriting is a whole other thing and I have a whole other method of how how I've developed that. And a lot of it has to do with, um, uh, what's that thing where you deal with, where, we, where you see things in colour? Syntheseus. There was actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm one of those dudes. Um, I've always done that. I've always um, see chords as colours. Literally, I see colours. Wow. And and that helps me in my songwriting. I didn't know it did, but it really, really, because I use it more and more these days. Uh, when where you see the shape of a song and and you see the colour of the bits that you like, and you, so you try and do more of that colour. It sort of really, really, really helps. Um, so anyway, I had that. I, for some reason, I'd played that chorus and I had, and I, and I, and the thing I was going to say was what I've always done as a songwriter, and I don't know how this happens, and I hope it never stops happening because my career will be over. Uh, but when I get an idea for a song, I always get, if I come up with a chord progression and a melody, I always get a lyric, and it happens at the same time. Really? Um, wow. It's very rare, and I don't, and I don't know why that is. It's not, it's not some, um, I'm not saying that, aren't I great? I'm not saying it like that. I'm saying I don't know why, but. I get into, I, I go into like a trance-like state, which sounds a bit wanky, but it actually, it's actually true. You know, you're just off somewhere with the fairies. You know, you're just playing your guitar kind of thing, and you get into that state where you become receptive to things. Your mind starts chasing these colors and ideas, and it becomes all very sort of abstract. But you're in this kind of dreamlike kind of state, I guess. Um, and, and, and I, so I'd come up with that that chord progression, that don't know, that that whole thing. And I'd sung a burn for you. I had that whole thing going on, and and I don't know why. I'd never heard a song called Burn for You, although I discovered later that you know. Um, so yeah, I had that chorus. I'd sung that lyric, um, and I'd actually recorded it. I put it on tape recorder, and I just put it to one side. And um, this is when I was what was I writing? I think we we're in between albums or something. I don't know. Um, I'd just done the. Well, I think I wrote it before. No, I'd written it before the Southern Suns record. Okay. Um, and I'd never played it to Jack because what happened was my manager came around and I said, look, I've got this idea and I'm not sure, I can't sing it. Um, this was for the band. I was gonna, It was going to be for, for Jack. And I played it to him and he still looked at me and went, no, I don't think so. And that was it. I just put it away. Uh, I always remind him about that. When he walks <laughs> into the house that that song bought, you know. Um, um, so I put that song aside. So then I got this phone call to go right with John that I told you about, and um, we're sitting sitting in this little shed at the back of his place because his place is being renovated or something. And you know, I'm sitting there, or I'm, I'm, I'm sort of standing next to John Farnham for the yeah, first time, man. hearing his voice. And I was like, wow. And I think we, we'd written 
New Day Coming, that one that I did the jazz solo on, I think we'd written the guts of that in the morning, and he was kind of really happy with that. And Ross had gone to get some, gone to get some sandwiches for lunch, and he sat me down. And he said, "Phil, you got any ballads?" And um, I had this one ballad. I won't go into the story, but I thought it'd be perfect for it. I'd written it, written it years ago, and I thought this is perfect for John Farnham. And here I am sitting with John Farnham. I'm going to plan this song, and I thought this is it. This is going to be one of those stories I'm going to be able to tell. <laughs> I played him it, and he said, "Yeah." <laughs> I said, "What else you got?" I thought the only thing I've got is burn for you. Wow. Um, so I played it, played it to him. Uh, you know, played him that burn for you chorus, and I had the, I mean, I had the the structure. I had all those chords going on. Yeah. Um, I didn't have the middle eight, uh, but I had oh, okay. uh, yeah, yeah. the rest of the chords and stuff. Yeah. So and, are you in, um, by the way, just jumping in, are you in open tuning? It sounds like you're in open no, E or something. No, it's standard. It's funny. A lot of guitar players ask me that, but no, it's one of the really? few tunes. Wow. Hey, maybe I should write some more in normal tuning. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have. Don't worry. Um, it's normal tuning, yeah. Okay. Um, it's just yeah. the open strings. You've got droning against the, exactly. some of the fretted yeah. that create those colors. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And um, John said, we'll, rec- we'll, we'll finish that this afternoon, just like that. Because yeah. that's the thing with great singers and great musos, you know, they they can hear an idea, you know. Wow. Uh, and the funny thing is, I've worked with a lot of people who are really talented, man, but they can't hear a good idea. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Mm. So many singers I've worked with that are really freaking talented will play me something and say, oh, well, we've just done this, this is great. And I'll listen to it and go, oh, oh I have to say something nice, you know, because I don't want it. But yeah, I mean, that's a whole other subject, but that's, 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 that's a gift, I reckon. Um, being uh, being uh, able to recognize, you know, something mightn't be right, but you can hear that, well, there's something really good about that, you know. Yeah, I think sure. do it, I don't know, whatever. So anyway, so John heard that and, and sort of dug, and then Ross came back and we played it to him. He said, yeah. He said, well, we need a middle eight, you know. So we started writing the lyric. They liked the burn for your lyric, which is kind of cool. Um, uh, and this is this is where I started to learn a lot about songwriting, or well, more about songwriting, the way John went about it, you know, because that guy's, you know, he by that stage, you know, he'd done that little river band thing, he'd done a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. and yeah. and and here I am for the first time there. So I hadn't done any co-writing before that, none, zero, zilch. So here I am writing with a singer, a singer of much talent and of much uh, prowess with his voice, you know, he could do a lot with that voice, you know. Um, so, you know, little things about the way he would approach a line, uh, the way we'd move lines around, you know, he, uh, I was just learning stuff and just learning about, uh, how long the verses should be, uh, just basic stuff that I'd only just learned from, uh, from instinct, you know, um, uh, and you know, it, it was a great period for me. And so, um, we, we sort of finished it and we had a little, uh, I think it was an eight track, um, Akai or something John had. And he said, well, we better do a demo of it, you know? So I, I put in a, put down the guitar track and he went in and sang it. And he came, when he, when he walked out, uh, cause you know, we, we, he was in another room kind of thing and, and we were listening in the other room. And when he came in, he was actually crying. He actually, I could see he was crying and, uh, he shook my hand and said, mate, that's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever had the pleasure to sing. And and from then on, my life changed. It really did. You know, not only did the sons go bang, but the whole that that the chain reaction record went bang as well. You know, and suddenly I was just flying. You know. Got myself into some trouble tonight. 
Cause I'm just feeling blue It's been so long since I've seen your face This distance between me and you That voice you show me is not the one that I know I must be strung out on what I do Don't hang up again There's nothing else I know how to do That I burn for you What am I gonna do Guess it feels like you're always wow, alone. that's incredible, man. Yeah, it was. It was freaking incredible. I remember, honestly, standing on stage at, at, at the tennis centre to a sold-out house playing Burn For You and having people sing along and just thinking, this just struck me. It's not going to get any better. That's it. <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this is the moment, you know, and it was just complete. If there ever could be pure joy and um you know the weight of the world lifted from my shoulders it was right at that moment and i just thought if if it all turns after this at least i can say uh, i felt that that have have when if you work so hard for so many years that things can come together you know um it, uh, it was it was it was uh, that was a magic period yeah wow like you said, you, um, you ended up doing the uh, the tour as well with Jack in the band. That, that must have been yeah, great Jack fun. The band. Yeah, and we went to Europe. We toured Europe, which, you know, I'd never done that before. Played open air. All the, we did the summer circuit. Then we were on tour with ZZ Top and uh, Brian Adams. And, uh, it was wild. You know, we went right through Europe on that tour, uh, playing all the big stages, playing to, you know, 100, 100, over 100,000 people at one gig we did. There was one gig we did uh, in Newburgh Rink. Which is somewhere up in Germany, where they actually where the famous um, uh, car racing things. Um, there was uh, over a hundred thousand people, and uh, it was just a freak out because we were. Uh, Sting was on the Sting, Toto, John Farnham. I'm not sure if ZZ Top were doing that gig, but man, it was a big show. And you know, I'm standing backstage, and Sting's. Standing <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe, and there's Steve Lukather standing over there. Um, so all that stuff was just amazing. You know, it's just a whole different world for me. Um, you know, coming from working in factories and working on road gangs, and suddenly, I'm, I'm sort of hanging around with these guys. <laughs> great, man. Yeah, it was great. It was a uh, one of those stories that you read about, and, and it actually happened. Yeah. yeah, wow. You've kind of downplayed the guitar playing side of things, but one, one thing I loved about the Southern Suns records is that the tunes are they're, they're super catchy, like super hooky. Yeah, um, there was great guitar playing for me. The for me, the your Jack. Yeah. Um, but the parts were cool. Like it was this was pop driven, but driven sorry pop songs, but driven by you know really great guitar changes and great guitar parts yeah i think because i i, I guess i my, my concentration wasn't on so much soloing and stuff anymore even though i still kind of was doodling with it i you know, I remember even when i was writing the sun's album i was still you know turn on the distortion pedal and 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 doing all this legato kind of stuff yeah. i've got tapes and tapes of that no just practice tapes you know there's a great um there's a great video of um of you and jack trading solos on what's that tune make uh, a move Make a move. That was an old state song. And actually, yeah, it was right. a Cutters song. It goes right back to the Cutters that song. And if you listen to the lyric of that song, it's about me working in factories. It's about wow. you've got to make, you've got to get out of this. You've got to, 
if you don't do it, if you don't make the move, you're just going to be stuck uh, forever. All that stuff is about that. But I'll tell you one funny story that I just have to tell because I don't know why. Because I've, I've done some songwriting clinics and stuff, and this always comes. Actually, when you talk about these things, sometimes it makes you realize what the hell was going on. But that song, that first, our first single, Heart in Danger, that. Uh, that whole song is about me selling. I mean, it, I'm not trying to draw attention to me. I'm not trying to like that. But that lyric, people thought it was a love song or something. But that lyric is about me selling out. That lyric is about um, coming from the whole jazz side of things and the the whole prog rock thing and the whole McLaughlin thing and all that stuff. Coming to be a pop guy. And, yeah, right. and, outside and, of the circle. Yeah. 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 All my life, I stood outside the circle, right, right outside the circle. Being so wrong somehow felt right. Who needs to belong? And that's what the heart and danger thing was, you know. You know, um, wearing me down. Because really, I was at, I was at the end, man. I was um, OC. Well, they call it OCD. Um, I was doing these weird routines every night before I went to bed, turning lights on and off a certain amount of times. Uh, I was, a, I was a wreck. I had stomach problems. Um, because this band had been going for like 15 freaking years, you know, and it was reaching a point where I was, I was getting to the age where if it didn't work, I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't do it. I'm one of those guys. I can play guitar and write songs. That's all I can do. I can't do it. Or, or I can work in a factory, you know, um, and I, did, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I, I had a, um, I think at that stage we had a baby on the way. Um, I was living on like, I don't know, 200 bucks a week or something. And it was, it was a disaster, you know, it was just heading for complete disaster. And then it just went bang, you know? So, um, you know, part of that first album was that desperation thing of, you know, all this, all all my life I've done this whole jazz thing and, and, and being my own guy, not done covers, not done anything like that. Never been a pop guy. And suddenly I listened to Joni Mitchell, listened to Bob Dylan, all that, all that stuff is real, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm writing pop songs. So it's weird, but it came out in that song, Heart and Danger. So, you know, there it is. Yeah, cool, <laughs> Next time, to listen to the lyric, and it's all, it's all set out. <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense, yeah. yeah. Adds a lot more depth. That's cool. I um, yeah. I love the album Nothing But The Truth. The um, Again, the guitars on that are great. The tunes are great. I think there's a bit more kind of sophistication, a little bit more. Um, I think a little bit more out of controlness, in as, in as much as I was really fighting against the pop thing by then. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we used different. We didn't use Ross on that. And as far as a pop thing is concerned, that was probably a mistake. Even though I loved Louis, Louis Shelton. Actually, Louis Shelton was the guy that did all the Monkeys guitar stuff. Oh, America. really? Wow, cool. Right? Yeah, he was a great guitarist. I remember him actually. Uh, on, there's one track on that. What's it called? Um, so unkind uh, on that album. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Got some. It's got a couple of weird chord changes in it, and, and I remember Jack was messing around with the guitar solo. I remember Lou walked up to him and said, "Try this," and sang him the guitar solo, which Jack ended up doing part of. I sort of oh, thought it was. Yeah. Um, that's a very lyrical solo. Yeah. That. Um, yeah. That, yeah. That's cool, man. So we we you know it was that whole pressure of the second album kind of thing, second album syndrome. You've got to come up with some hits and stuff, you know. And really, I was sitting down trying to write hits. That's the worst thing you ever want to try and do. It just doesn't work, you know. But somehow I managed to pop out uh, Leaving the Water and 
and um, I, I really like nothing but the truth. I kind of wanted to go in that direction. Yeah, I uh, love that tune, man. Yeah, really. Now, have you seen the way Virgil's done it? I mean, he did a version with Jack. On, on if you look it up on YouTube, look up Virgil Donati, nothing but the truth. And yeah, I've seen it. It's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, I really dig that. Um, and I kind of wanted to go in that direction, and I reckon yeah. we kind of should have. I reckon we should have broken from the whole pop thing. Um, but you know, t- the, the the call was too strong. I just we got this success, and I did not want to let it go. Sure. But I wasn't smart enough to know that this is a po- if you're going to play the pop game, you've got to play by the pop rules, and the, and the pop, pop rules are reinvent. Uh, and I didn't know that. Uh, I know that in hindsight, in hindsight, you know. Um, but we just try to do more of the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, that's a big mistake. But also, um, uh, just around that time, the world was the world was changing as pop music does. You know, along came Nirvana. Yeah, yeah. And all, all us kind of '80s guys <laughs> just blown out of the water. Basically, music changed. Um, for the, you know, I, and I think for the, for the better as far as rock and roll was concerned. Um, but we got caught up in that, and I remember taking our stuff to radio and then just saying, no, we're not playing it. That's it. You're, you're no longer the flavor of the month, and that's yeah, what happens wow. when you try and be the flavor of the month. You know, you, you, uh, you've, you can't do that. You know, you've got to be smarter than that, and I wasn't. I really, it was new to me. This whole pop thing was like a, uh, I was not uh, equipped to deal with how to work the system. Uh, I, I was just a, you know, a guitar player in a band, basically a songwriter, and I wasn't didn't have the nous to even even lyrically. I didn't have the nous to put something a little bit more hard edge. There was too many love songs on Nothing But the Truth. I remember um, we did a gig at the Grain Store when Nothing But the Truth was released. I remember one of our really ardent fans, a girl you know, come to all the gigs and, you know, everything, just loved the band. She came up to me to have the Nothing But The Truth album signed and she looked at me and she said, you've got five love songs on this album, is that a good idea? <laughs> and it bloody dawned on me, and it only dawned on me right yeah. then. And, hell, I didn't even think about the makeup of the album. I just thought, uh, as far as the direction of the band was, because I just played right into the Euro pop band kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. I was gonna say there was grittier stuff. I mean, nothing but the truth. Um, Shelter was a great track. The the first track, yep. loved yeah. that. Yeah, but the love songs. I, I need to tell you something, Phil. Um, two of those love songs ended up at my wedding back in '94. So, <laughs> oh wow, <laughs> they came to good use. I had um I had a mate sing and a mate play. You were there. Oh, fantastic! Which was which was lovely and. That's really nice. And um, our my first um dance with my wife was to Wildest Love. Ah, there you go. See that? I like that song, man. I, I listened to it the other day and thought, there's, a, "There's that sappy part of me that really loves a good ballad if it really makes me feel something." Yeah. And I think Jack just sang that song so well. Beautiful, yeah. And it's such a simple song. It's just a one six four five. Dun 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 dun. dun yeah, dun, yeah. Dun. It's got that little. That's all it is. But it's awesome. in a D. It's in a D tuning, which sort of gives it that uh, other kind of side to it. Um, yeah, there's a part of me that kind of likes that, like, hey, here's a real simple pop song, you know, and if a pop song's done well, I love it, you know, because I grew up, I, I, before I started all the jazz stuff, you know, when you're, when you're a kid, you listen to all that pop stuff, you know, and I grew up listening to Roy Orbison and the Beatles, my sister had the Beatles, um, the, the, she'd buy every Beatle record that came out, you know, and I'd be playing with my Lego blocks and listening to the Beatles, those songs, those songs went <laughs> into great. my head, man, you know? Uh, so yeah, yeah. yeah, with um, with Wildest Love, is that Jack? It sounds like Jack yeah, doing the solo Jack. on that. Yeah, he's perfect for that sort of stuff. Because Jack, Beautiful. I mean, I don't know. You should try and interview Jack one day, but he's a guitar player. 
he was really influenced yeah, by Larry Carlton. Yeah. And even when he, like, at, at the age of 15, he was doing all those Carlton solos. He had them down cold. And so that whole knowledge yeah. of chord changes and the, and the right note to play at the right time. And also what freaked me out about Jack was he was so relaxed because he'd done so many gigs, like a million more gigs than I'd done, you know. Because uh-huh. he'd, he'd played in cover bands and stuff and whatever since he was really, really young. And in fact, he'd auditioned for yeah. our band when he was 15. He would yeah. Oh, yeah, I read something yeah. about that. And you guys knocked him yeah. back because he was too young. Yeah, it's a true story. It's a true story. Yeah, it's a true story. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just it's amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah, he was such he's such a naturally gifted, um, relaxed kind of guy. He's one of those guys that I – mean, I remember in the Farnham band um, because the, uh, when we were in John's band, I had to play John's songs. Well, that, to me, this was a whole other world. I, I only knew my songs. I didn't know anyone else's. Uh, yeah right yeah no so I had to sit down and learn yeah. and here I am playing all these major bar chords going what the hell is this stuff you know really and I found it <laughs> kind of weird <laughs> it's natural you know so I'm standing there trying to right. remember the chords we're like we're playing you're the voice and I'm going okay next chord's a G yep gotta go <laughs> really I have to think about that whereas I'm looking I remember one day looking over at Jack and Jack and Wayne Nelson you know the whiz who's the, the, was the bass player they're talking to each other the and they're playing. Player, yeah, yeah. I'm going, how are they doing that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I've got to think about what the next chord is. And he's over there just just doing it naturally. Just, he know, you know, like there's another part of his brain that's dealing with that. And while this part of his brain's talking away, you know, and, and keeping perfect time. And Wayne, man, that guy, he was like Benson. He had the feel from hell. And I was standing right in front of his amp. And I tell you, when he was talking to the drummer or talking to Jack or talking to Hirsch, he never missed a beat. Never. It's always in the pocket. Anyway, yeah, wow. to go on about those guys. So that was never nat- that was another reason, uh, Matt, why I was so happy to to hand over the guitar playing um, because I was a nervous perform- performer. Um, I, I would, was never relaxed on stage. Always, uh, I'm one of those guys that can't get out of the moment. I can't. Um, what the heck can I put it? I'm always thinking about something. My mind won't stop thinking. I'm thinking about what's happening in the front row. I'm thinking, are they liking it? I'm thinking, what's the vibe? I'm feeling oh, yeah. the vibe. It's that whole, and then that whole uh, that thing I was talking about before about the colours, it it all plays into this okay. feeling yeah. thing of what's the atmosphere. I'm thinking about the atmosphere intensely, feeling the atmosphere change between the audience and the band, and how is this working? And and while I'm thinking that, I've forgotten what I'm playing. It's hopeless. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I I can't uh, see that in the videos yeah, though, made, when I watch those videos. And I'm kicking myself because I, I did get invited to see to watch Southern Suns. Uh, you guys were playing at the oh, Enmore yeah. yeah. somewhere years ago. And I just couldn't make it for some reason. I've, I've kicked myself since. But but all the videos I see you playing, all those live videos, you Yeah, I like guess so. Um, it, it's, it, th- that was when I'm doing my, our stuff, though. You know, when, I'm, when I was in John's band, I was yeah, like, right. this is, I've got to get this right. And this is, these are not my tunes. I, I Remember these girls I'm playing yeah, that's freedom yeah. and it's a it's a massive E and F sharp minor chords and B and then you have to drop a bar here and <laughs> yeah. you know to to other players who play that stuff that's easy that's a walk in the park you know but to me playing in tunings and playing all that odd stuff that's that's easy you know that's that's what I grew up with and doing that kind of stuff I mean in in the Suns I think we had I don't know how many guitars I had. I had about four or five, I think. Um, I had a D tuning, I had an E tuning, I had a C tuning, I had a normal yeah. tuning, and I think I even had oh, and, and the little Yamaha was tuned for for Heart and Danger with that was only a drop D. I could have done that on the spot, I guess, okay. but that was tuned to drop D. But um, I was happy to do that. That's 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 easy stuff. It's playing other yeah, people's sure. tunes that sort of 
wigged me out. That was yeah. <laughs> that was weak, and and it made me realise that I you know I am uh, how could you put it? It sort of made me realise that you, people uh, are good at certain things and are not so great. At <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. I think you definitely found your thing and uh, squeezed a lot of cool guitar stuff going on. The, your guitars back then, I, I seem to remember you had a Gretsch. Um, there were some Yamahas. Were you, was there any deal with Yamaha? It seemed like you were playing those. Uh, there was. I was. I did a little clinician run for them on the Pacifica, um, uh, yeah, yeah. which was new back then. And Yeah. Um, that was a beautiful guitar to play, but man, I can never get a good sound. It was so thin, and I think it was made out of mahogany. So it was this thin little bit of mahogany, and it was just always thin. And a good example of it is that clip you talked about. The uh, uh, you can hear when I'm sawing, and when Jack Jack's got this huge fat sound with his Charvel. Did he Charvel? Yeah, I think it was the white one. That was a. I think it might have yeah. been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Jack was always changing his gear and the rest of it, uh, and you know, I'm trying to sort of keep up with him, and it's like <laughs> I couldn't on that guitar. That's for sure. I just figured it was the mix. throwing that guitar off stage went literally really <laughs> I just hated it in the end I sorry oh, for wow. anyone who plays the Pacifica I'm sorry but it was just the the type of material we were playing and uh, yeah never yeah. make it sound fat and I had you know I had this this huge rig <laughs> that were the days of power amps and all that sort of crap and, and Soldano preamps and but yeah I remember literally throwing it off stage at I can tell you where it was too it was I think it was at Parks at the RSL oh um, yeah no it was actually no it was uh, on the on the border somewhere uh, Albany or something yeah somewhere like that and just literally just picking it up <laughs> throwing it off the stage and that was it that was the end of that guitar <laughs> 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 and I wasn't even drunk. <laughs> Oh, cool, man. Um, yeah, I've seen you been playing playing strats and stuff. What do you um? So the jazz stuff you're doing now. What are you, what are you playing um on that? In fact, what was the Uday guitar? I'm, I'm jumping around a little, if that's okay. But sorry, which was the which, what was which the, guitar? 
for New Day for that solo. What oh, was that guitar? Coming. That would have been one of my strats back in the day. Oh, I had so, really? had so many guitars. Wow. Um, I assumed it was some kind of hollow body. Yeah, kind of sound like a hollow body. I think it was a, just a white. It was a session strat. It was like because I'd worked in a for a music wholesaler for a little while, uh, the, uh, yeah. Electric Factory back here in Melbourne, and they were bringing in session at the time. So I think I was just changing bodies, trying different necks. I was really into that. I was mad. I would ruin so many guitars, man. I'm not I actually scalloped the fretboard on a rolling guitar synth. <laughs> if you watch the film clip to Always and Ever, there's a part at the end where we yeah. go through a, a water falling. Well, that water was yeah. being pumped off the street and it was freezing cold. I'm not kidding you. All of our hearts stopped when we went through that water because it was so cold. But I knew that whatever guitar I was holding was going to be ruined when I went through. So I, <laughs> I'd wrecked that, that rolling guitar since so badly. Uh, I'd scalloped the fretboard with a screwdriver. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what I used. You can just see it. I just go through the water. And that was it. They just got thrown in the, in the wheelie bin outside after that. <laughs> oh, wow, man. <laughs> Uh, the jazz stuff at the moment I'm using I'm a real fan of Collings guitars oh yeah lovely so I'm using a Collings I've got an Inside Deluxe I've also got a CL Jazz of theirs which is just beautiful and I've got a 1952 175 oh man too many guitars um got a couple of nice Ibanez uh jazz guitars as well GB300 and a GB200 um and I've got um because I'm thinking some of this stuff that I'm talking about writing, um, I'm thinking of actually changing over to a solid body because I, I need to be able to get a little bit of volume sort of going on. Um, okay, so cool. I just, I was in Japan visiting, uh, we're visiting our daughter at Christmas time. And there's an, there's an Aussie guy that works in one of the music stores there in Tokyo called, uh, the music store's called Ishibashi. And uh, actually, there's a YouTube clip of Tommy Emanuel visiting the very shop that I went to, uh, Ishibashi. And there's an Australian guy that works there. And it turns out... Um, uh, so it was really funny. We're standing in this music shop, the biggest music shop I've ever been in. Oh my God, I've never seen so many Gibsons, Fenders, and just amazing guitars all in one place. And we're standing there looking at guitars, and suddenly I hear from just coming in from behind me, Phil Buckle from Southern Sun. <laughs> he's, he's a lovely guy. His name's Jason, and he recognized me. And it turns out he was a big fan of the bands, you know, back in the day, and he's from Adelaide. Yeah. Uh, and we, every time we went to Adelaide, uh, we used to allow him to come backstage and you know see the guitars, and we just used to talk a lot, you know. And I'd forgotten, I just couldn't recognise him because this is like twenty years ago. You know? And he's just going nuts, and he just he he runs the shop there, you know, and he just just showed us, he just gave us the uh, incredible uh, treatment, you know, just really showed us everything. He was just a lovely guy. But uh, when I was at the shop, actually, I went to a different Ishibashi shop when I went to Nagoya, where my daughter lives, and, and uh, another huge shop. They had so many Fender custom shops, and I I'd never played a Fender because I'd kind of lost interest in solid body guitars, you know. I was real, I'm sort of interested in jazz guitars now, um, and I've got my Strat and blah 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 to write on and uh, I went to this shop and I thought oh, I'm going to have a look at some of these I picked up one of those Fender custom shops and my god I was blown away it was like this is the best Fender I've ever played my god it feels incredible you know that really gets me about that you know why can't they just do that with all guitar well, <laughs> exactly. just copy it man just copy it exactly but the way they felt, you know, they, the necks were beautiful and they just felt right, you know, and I thought, this is gorgeous. And I made the mistake of picking up, they had hanging there a, a Fender 1959 reissue cl closet classic jazz master with oh, a ridiculous wow. price tag on it, you know. Anyway, I picked its guitar up and I just played it. And I don't know if it's ever happened to you, Matt, but sometimes 
maybe twice in my life, I picked up a guitar and thought, this guitar belongs to me. This is meant for me. This guitar plays exactly how I want a guitar to play. I mean, and I've played a lot of guitars, and I'm past, I've worked in music shops. I've worked in a music shop for 10 years. I worked at a wholesaler. I used to go and pick the Gibsons we used to at, at the warehouse. I'd go through all the Gibsons picking them for the shop. I'm used to, you know, that whole magic of guitar thing is kind of worn off a bit, you know. But uh-huh. this thing, man, it was magic when I picked, picked this guitar up and I just thought I've got to have it. So I, I actually ended up ordering one when I got back to Australia. So that, that will be the first solid body guitar I've bought in a very, very long time. I've got to sell a few guitars to pay for it. Okay. <laughs> <Very> expensive. <laughs> woo Cool, man. That sounds great. Yeah, so it's, that it's, sounds heaps I've got a cool. jazz master coming. I just got to find the right amp for it now, but, you know, Nice. That could be the guitar for this stuff. Well, I reckon it? it could be, you know, because the 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 acoustic thing is kind of that's great for the fifties kind of thing. But I don't want to do a fifties thing. I I want to use the language, but I want to use a different sound for it. So I reckon this could uh-huh. be the, this could be the, a good starting place. And then I have to experiment with gauges of strings and whether it can take flat wounds and whether flat wounds are the right the right thing for it. Because flat wounds um are great for this technique I'm using, especially the picking technique, because you hit the string uh, with the pick sideways. And on flat wound strings, it's quite a nice, smooth sound. But on round wound strings, you can hit a little. Oh, okay. So it may or may not work. But anyway, you can get some. There's some good, good uh, uh, gauges, lighter gauges of uh, flat wound strings that you can get these days. So I'll do some experimenting. But it's, I know these kind of arrive for about six or eight months or something. It takes a, it takes them a while to make these things because it's, it's okay. actually not on in the catalog anymore. It's actually been discontinued. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they, someone's going to have to make it. Wow. Kind of exciting. Good song. Mm. Good song. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, I've got a couple of guitars I'll sell, um, that, you know, that, uh, uh, that, that, that will fund it. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. I really am. Yeah, cool, man. Well, yeah, like I said, I'd love to, um, love to see where this ends up for you, this, uh, this new kind of direction. Yeah, I'm kind of um, scared about yeah. it, and I'm kind of excited about it because uh, it means I'm going to be singing again, which means you know I have to write in a certain range and all the rest of it. But um, well, it's one thing about my songwriting, you know, because uh, we didn't touch on that stuff, but that'd be another hour's conversation. That the, the songs I've been writing since those days. Uh, yeah, well, there's um, yeah, there's a whole host of um people you've written with. It seems like you sort of hit the ground running after Southern Sons anyway, because. Every man and his dog wanted to start writing with you then. Yeah, I mean, and, but you know, unfortunately for me, the whole pop thing, the whole you know, let's sell a record and get some air and, and get some airplay and, and and make some money, that kind of thing died. You know, everybody started sort of downloading. So, um, luckily for me, uh, long story short, I started writing production music. I mean, I I'm yeah, really yeah. hard pressed to if, if even if you know really famous people ring me and want to write, I I really think twice about it because you know, unfortunately. I mean, if it's an art thing, sure. You know, if it's something really cool, and I know there's going to be no money. Who cares? You know, I just do it if it if they're great. If they're you know if they're talented people, it's good to work with um, you know with talented people. But uh, it's really hard to make a buck as a, as a songwriter in, in the pop world because the, in Australia there's kind of no pop world for a start. Um, you know, that that whole thing of being a songwriter and writing for other people that just doesn't work. You know, I mean, unless you're a seer. Uh, you want to get into that kind of thing, but that's a whole. That's a whole. I'm, I'm not that. You know, that's a whole different kind of trip. Um, any band worth its salt are writing their own songs. Any any singer songwriter, you know, they write their own stuff. You know, they don't they don't need some songwriter. So I started doing this production music thing, um, and I've been doing it for ten. For this is my twelfth year now. It was eleventh year last year. This is my twelfth year, 
Um, and I tell you what, man, it's the best thing I ever did. Um, you know, I started writing for Universal, um, and production music is usually instrumental stuff, but I, they wanted me to do songs because I'm a songwriter. So anyway, long story short, I've got about 30 albums uh, of this stuff, and uh, wow. uh, I've got over 600 tracks circling the globe, uh, all being played somewhere, and it supplies me with a living, you know. And the great thing about it is no one steals it. Uh, yeah. Uh, every time someone plays it, I get paid. Um, so it's That's kind of brilliant. back to that kind of um, that transaction that it always should be, you know. I think anyway, where you you do your work, you write something, and the person who uses it, um, you get paid. The songwriter gets paid for it. It's not a lot. Um, you don't know, get paid a lot for every time it gets played, but you, but um, I make up for that by numbers, you know, because I'm. That's the other thing I discovered by doing it is that I'm really prolific. I can I can write a lot of songs, um, and uh, uh, that's really served me well. Uh, so for the last you know twelve years, I've been sort of stockpiling all these songs. Everything I write gets goes out uh, internationally, which you know, and that that because of the internet, that barrier has been broken. You know, the Suns. We could never get released in America, even, you know, because you had to go there and and convince them that you know it was it was going to work for them. We, we never could do that. We got turned down by the international companies. We were released in Asia and just pirated. We didn't make any money out of Asia. Uh, okay. they, wow. they, they were really big on pirating. They just make their own CDs, you know. Yes. <laughs> I remember signing some of them. Like, hang on, this cover <laughs> looks a bit dodgy, you know. Um, uh, oh man, it's not funny, but it's, it's yeah. so bad. It is funny. Oh, look, man, I remember standing um, uh, in this in the in the kitchen of this house that you know, the, as I said, the the sons and, and the farm stuff had, had literally bought, and saying to, uh, having a conversation with my manager, and he said, you know, you know, with these new modems, that, these things, this computer thing that people have got, that uh, you can download a song in less than two hours. Well, I'm going to him, yeah, but. Two hours? Come on, man. They're never going to download an <laughs> album. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I managed to sort of bypass all that stuff. And um, I love doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to do it until I drop dead, I hope. Uh, yeah. Awesome. I'm sort of backing off a little bit because I want to get more into writing my own stuff. But um, I've got this big library of songs sort of circling the globe and get to write what I want. It can be rock and roll. I mean, I'm doing a... This next album I'm doing is like a retro. It's actually it's not a, not even a vocal album. It's, this is for a UK company. This is going to be a retro '60s guitar Tarantino kind of thing. Um, you know, lots oh, cool, of uh, spring reverbs and, and yeah. Nice. I wish I had my jazz master for this project. Um, and then I'm doing yeah. Then I'm doing another pop pop album after that, an indie kind of pop thing. So I get to work with a whole bunch of different singers, write a whole bunch of songs, and you know they get played, which is which is it's wonderful, you know. That's great. Um, so yeah, sort of fell on my feet there, but you know, it got lean there for a little while. But that's the life of a muse, I would imagine. That yeah, sure. Nothing new to anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, it's been so good talking to you, and um, I do feel like we could keep talking for another couple of hours <laughs> on all this stuff, man. But um, yeah, I really. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But but yeah, I really appreciate your time and your your candor and your stories, man. Um, yeah, it's so good, so good. It's like therapy, mate. I should be paying you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, give us a yell when you um when your uh, your oddball jazz pop yeah, fusion comes together, and um man, maybe we can speak some more. Yeah, definitely. I actually like to get some feedback from people when I do this stuff because you know I'm I'm, I'm uh, uh, 
I'm sort of open. One thing I've learned about all this songwriting stuff is that because um, I'm doing a lot of a lot of writing now with people in in the UK. I went and lived in the UK for six months because of this, you know, this production music that I'm doing, and met a whole bunch of incredibly talented people. And um, I'm writing with them, and it's it's amazing. It's it's opening up a whole other world of stuff. And I've I've found that the, uh, there's a uh, a big part of me that really digs co-writing and getting other people's opinions because I did spend, as I said, I you know I spent ten or eleven years. 12 years doing this uh, production music and I did that on my own just in my studio by myself and I really you start to go mad you start to go slightly mental I can I could see it happening uh, and then to go out and then meet these guys and they're, they're incredible musicians um, just incredible musicians I mean I'm talking about guys that are you know doing really really well um, songwriters um, uh, MDs I mean I met, uh, I met and worked with the MD for Bjork um, uh, worked with uh, the MD for Oasis, uh, for High Flying Birds. I mean, these guys yeah, cool. to be hanging with these guys, and and, and I'm, I'm learning from them, man. I mean, these these are like guys from another kind of part of the music business that I had nothing to do with, kind of thing. And I'm doing a lot of writing with them. But anyway, I'm going off track. My point is, I'm really digging getting other people's opinions and being open to it. So when I do get some of this stuff that I'm talking about, I will run it by you and just get some really candid opinions, uh, so I can, you know, uh, just find out what I'm doing because I, I, I'm it's it, it, I'm, I'm kind of lost. Um, but I'm just going to have a crack. I'm just going to get out and do it and just see what happens. Yeah, great, man. Sounds like fun. Cool. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, yeah, well, thank you again, Phil. And, um, great talking. Yeah, hopefully hopefully talk again. Love to. Anytime, man. I can chew your ear off anytime. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Thanks, mate. All right, there you go. My conversation with Phil Buckle. I love that. I love hearing all those stories and... Uh, all the great stuff that's still going on. Obviously, Phil's still very busy in production and songwriting and doing his library music and still finds time to woodshed a few hours of jazz stuff and push into some new directions too. So good stuff. Really looking forward to hearing more from Phil in the near future. Now, remember, you can listen to all of our previous episodes through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or if you head over to guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com, you can also get all of our episodes there. They're all free and available for download. We're also on the Facebooks and the Instagrams, so you can follow us there. And if you're enjoying the episodes, why not share them around your own social medias? That would be really cool. We really appreciate that. Now, we're going to go out with a little bit more of Phil's songwriting. This is a track already mentioned in the interview. It is The Wildest Love by Southern Sons. Yes, this was the first uh, song my bride and I danced to over 23 years ago. Now, we don't usually do love song dedications on the Guitar Speak podcast, but we are this week. All right. Okay. Thank you, Phil, for the song. And Jack Jones, a.k.a. Irwin, for the uh, great vocal and guitar performance. My name is Matt Wakeling and you've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Bye now.
memory of this chance Whole constellations spinning over our heads Cannot match what I see in your eyes 